Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique, specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Radia Lou on the socials. Confused about fertility and trying to get pregnant? Want to know more but don't want to flag it to the world? Welcome to our podcast, Knocked Up. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison. I have no medical background, but I'm a 40-year-old woman who has gone through freezing her eggs. I'm joined as always by Dr. Rayleigh Alou, a CREI certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. We started this podcast with the aim to provide easy to understand information on hard concepts relating to fertility, infertility and all aspects of women's health. Now today we're joined with a guest. We've got Dr. Priya Alexander with us. Welcome Priya. Thank you. Priya is a GP based in Melbourne, like us. Um, really, he talks a lot about preventative medicine and uh, is a medical educator for Eastern Victoria GP training. So you can um, find Priya online. She's got quite the social media presence at The Wholesome Doctor mm-hmm. on all the socials. And also you've been on a few other podcasts and TV, Channel 7, Mamma Mia, Grace Tales, and you've got a baby. Not I such do. a baby. Well, she's three and a half now, so I do. I have a toddler and I'm 22 weeks pregnant. Yeah, I'm waiting for more chaos. But, yeah, so yeah. I speak from experience. a health background. From experience. From experience. <laughs> yeah. I know what's going on behind closed doors. <laughs> so, Priya, you used the words just when we were chatting beforehand. You used the words, and you, and you have it on your socials, about health literacy. So maybe tell us a bit about how you got to wanting to focus on health literacy. So this all started in about 2016. So I started The Wholesome Doctor. Um, I remember being pregnant with my daughter at the time. And I was probably the word is frustrated and exhausted with the amount of health misinformation that I was seeing out there, both in mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can often open a newspaper or an, or a magazine within a mainstream newspaper and go, wow, that doesn't feel factual to me as, yeah. a, as a doctor. Rayleigh's kind of nodding because it happens. She, she very recently got frustrated with an article that was published. So I did. She's, I yes. did. There was an article um, quite recently in The Lancet that was very misinterpreted in the media about menopause and HRT and breast yes. cancer risk. And, yes. And um, I just felt, and we, we've known for a long time that certain formulations of menopause hormonal therapy or previously known as hormonal replacement therapy have an association with an increased breast cancer risk. So it's not new information, um, but the way that it was reported was so scary and so inflammatory and actually quite skewed and biased and and also inaccurate um, that... I just thought to myself when I saw that, oh, tomorrow when I go to work, I'm going to have all these patients who are absolutely scared. Agree. Yeah. And that's similar with the article, which I'm sure you saw. There was the um, meta-analysis, like a huge kind of study done of caesarean section. Oh, yes. And, you know, doctors look at it, and I did break it down for people on social media. I know we've digressed here slightly, but this, this was a moment where I went, oh, my goodness. Yeah. And 
they'd kind of, and you, you would have seen it because they basically fear-mongered in the media about yeah. C-section being linked to ADHD and autism. Yeah. I had an emergency Caesar with my daughter. Like, yeah. I'm fit and healthy and thought, you know, I'll nail childbirth is what yeah. you think you have no control over, however. And I've planned an elective Caesar this time because uh, yeah. the obstetrician, my husband and I, we've decided it's not worth it for us yeah. to, to go through that again. Absolutely not. But this article scared yeah. me. Oh, I the way to, the media portrayed it. It, it, it really fr- – I mean, I'm not the medical person, but I know enough that it gets me really frustrated when, you know, the most people I know having children are in their late 30s are insisting on having natural. And it's like you're not meant to be giving natural birth at this age and there's reasons for it. And the most important thing is giving birth safely. Forget about what you think you're meant to do. Yeah, yeah look, I think, I think that's not entirely fair. I think, you know – Many women do give birth naturally and readily and without complications. And I would say the majority of women are in that category. But I would say that it's actually quite a new thing. And again, big digression on the topic, but it's a new thing. Really, I believe probably in the last, you know, 10, 20 years to have such a media focus and such a a women, kind of women having their self-worth questioned by their ability to pass a baby through their birth canal. That's it. That's it. And it's become a kind of badge of honour and social media has not helped that because you see women who kind of say, I did it without drugs and I did it without Mm. any assistance. And what I say to patients is, does that matter? Like you take a year 12 class and you tell me, I use it for breastfeeding as well, I say to, you know, mums to make them feel better, tell me which kids were born via vaginal birth and Caesar, point them out and tell me which ones were breastfed and bottle fed. And mums will always go, oh, I have no idea. Exactly. It doesn't matter. It's what works for women and there shouldn't be judgment around that. But the way that was portrayed in the media, they didn't, you know, the media often don't break down studies um, like we do, looking for biases or why a study might be flawed and what data is included and why it's perhaps not reliable. But I remember going back to answering the original question is that in 2016 I had read an article in mainstream media saying avocado consumption, you know, increasing avocado consumption potentially helps cure cancer. And I just remember turning to my husband, Will, who's also medical, going, am I going crazy or is the world going crazy or have we missed some huge study that says that avocados actually cure cancer? And that was the kind of stimulus for going, okay, there's too much misinformation. There's too many people with platforms who look great in bikinis, who get follower numbers, who then start spreading information or misinformation on vaccines and diet and fad things that have absolutely no evidence. And so that's, I'm trying to combat some of the misinformation. So you're trained as a GP. Yes. And practice as a GP. Yes. How how did you start to build that audience and... I I guess, shape your message? Slowly and with lots of work. So it's been a long path. Like it's taken, you know, three or four years of lots of trudging in mud and doing posts and writing things that get knocked back and spending hours and hours kind of trying to see where this is going. And it kind of took shape all on its own Um, because my followers started to become predominantly young mums. Mm -hmm. You know, when I look at the breakdown, the majority of people who follow me are women like us in the room who are either thinking about kids pregnant or in that first kind of five years of motherhood. So it kind of shaped itself in terms of followers. And then once your patients start to go, Priya, I found you on Mamma Mia, word just spreads and that's Mm -hmm. how it kind of grew for me. 
I think everyone has different fortes. Like yeah. I think, um, you know, Raylia on social media would have very different strengths to me. Yeah. Um, and I think one of mine, being a GP who has breadth of knowledge, that's yes. what GPs are awesome at. You know, we know yeah. a little bit about everything. And you're also the ones who speak to the patient the most. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have that continuity and we need to know a, a little bit about everything. But what I try and do on social media is, you know, like a topic like dermatitis um, or a topic like cradle cup, which is what I did recently, yeah. is I pick things that a lot of people know about or think they know something yes. about. And I just try and really simply break it down. So I often get a big topic and go, you know, these are the top key points when it comes to dermatitis in your child. Um, and I think that's my strength, which is just kind of simplifying really complex medical stuff because it's really normal for people like Raylia and I talking about cortisone or preconception 100%. care or, but, yeah. you know, lay people. Like, what the hell does that mean? Yeah, exactly. Like even patients go to me, what is preconception care? And I'm like, okay, let's break this down. So that's what I try and do on social media, making it, making health information accessible but fun. People don't want to read. We don't want to read long things. No. And we don't know what the big words mean. Yes, and you don't want to read boring kind no. of. You've got to be engaging. You've got to use personal experience. You've got to have a nice picture of, you know, something because the world is changing. People don't want to pick up a big, long newspaper article, not interested. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I've kind of experienced on social media, we on our platforms have had Women's Health Melbourne social media for quite a while, which is my practice, um, which is now a multidisciplinary practice. Mm -hmm. uh, but... In terms of my own social media, um, Dr. Raylia Lou, I only started that relatively recently. And the difference being that there's a lot more personal information mm -hmm. on, on that channel. Uh, what have some of the challenges been for you and what do you feel, because you've been in this space for longer than I have, of being on social media, putting yourself out there and having patients and followers come into your world? I'm very careful about protecting, um, firstly, my child. Mm. So she's de-identified on there. Um, and there's, you know, red herrings in terms of you can't really find out who she is. I also have stopped posting certain locations and that's been under the guidance of um, the police really after a recent attack yeah, with we'll anti-vaxxers we might talk yeah. about soon. Uh, so I'm careful about people tracking because you do get unusual people on social media the thing that a lot of doctors ask me is we're kind of taught to have this almost you know very clear boundary with our patients and for some doctors that is they don't shake their patient's hand they would never give their patients a hug they would never touch them that's fine and I think we're all at different levels of comfort I am very different in the sense that I do hug mm. very carefully some of my patients there are people who you go through all sorts of trauma with them and you can't stop crying in the room when they share. You know, I've shared tears with patients when you go, this is a momentous moment or I feel your loss of your child with you. This is awful. So I'm quite open that I'm slightly on the oversharing of the therapeutic relationship. I've never breached that, I don't think, because I know lots of colleagues who go to me, look, you've not done anything that's abnormal. You're simply more comfortable with how you interact with your patients Social media gives people a glimpse into your life. And but they how, think they know you. They think they do. And, you know, I think it's actually quite powerful. I think, you know, when my patients say to me, Priya, I saw that 
chicken parma you made on Sunday morning and oh, you put mushrooms in the sauce and you're not bullcrapping when you say that you do this stuff. It actually adds weight, I think, to the GP relationship with my patients because people know that I struggle with my toddler. When I give them infant sleep and settling advice, I'm coming from a place where I've lived the sleepless nights and I know what it looks like when you're kind of going mental and haven't slept for days on end. So I think you've got to be really careful. Like if anyone's thinking about doing it or you're in the early stages, you've got to be really careful. You've got to have clear boundaries. But I personally think it's added weight to mm. my ability as a GP to, to kind of connect with patients really. It's empathy. and It is. Yeah. Yeah, and your GP's human. Like your doctors are human. Absolutely. Um, and I've shared things like miscarriage, and so I get patients coming in and go, "I read that piece, and you mentioned, and that you know, I, it gave me some solace, and it can be quite a beautiful thing. Like we're humans that feel all the same stuff. We just have some more knowledge, which can sometimes make it harder, to be honest. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about the controversy? The controversy. I would say that Priya has been, you know, one, one has seen one of the ugly sides of social media, which is when she shared some, what I would think was, you know, very kind of black and white, science-based, evidence-based, standard medical advice on uh, vaccination. Mm-hmm. And um, she was abused, she was threatened, and she was really harassed by a group of anti-vaxxers on social media. And I'm talking about not just one or two people, but quite a huge number of of people who are really crossing a line, I would say, of human decency and of, you know, our social expectations of how one human being behaves to another human being. And it's almost like social media as a platform was used in a way that I would say would have been totally unacceptable if you were in the same room having a conversation with someone that you... Um, which often happens. With someone you know or someone you don't know, just with another person. I agree. And the fact that most of these people were adults is what scares me because I just think, gosh, is that what our children see and think is the norm? It was... So I was actually uh, about 11 weeks pregnant then and I hadn't told anyone at that point. So I was quite hormonal and emotional anyway bonus. Yes, it was a <laughs> wonderful patch of life. Yeah, I got inundated. Rayleigh's right. It was I got basically my post on on Facebook kind of reached 300,000 reach and kept climbing. The mm-hmm. comments were just thick and fast, negative. They were ranging from things like, you know, there's this big conspiracy that doctors are paid by big pharma. I've never seen a cent sadly, so I don't know what the conspiracy is about. A lot of threats about, you know, I didn't deserve my child. I was a baby killer. These are quotes. There were racial attacks about, you know, you should be an Indian medicine healer or something, go back to, you know, India. I was actually born in Tasmania, but anyway, I wasn't going to start interacting with these people. Uh, It got very heated and then there were some actual threats of violence and talk about guns and so I had to get the police involved who were quite helpful. It had a big impact on... First of all, how my family and I felt about personal safety, which is awful. It's just awful when you actually go, I'm actually only trying to do something good here, which is to improve health literacy. Uh, So that was a real negative. Like I remember my husband kind of going, we've got to think about, is this worth it? And it was really, really draining in terms of, you know, my clinic had to do a shutdown. People, if they called and asked certain questions, is she in today? 
really harmless. My patience is pre coming in on Monday so I can drop off a card. We can't tell you anything. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see my doctor. Yeah. Yeah. So we had, it was just awful. It was really bizarre and awful opening experience. It really showed me the support I had of the medical community, mm. which if anything positive came out of it, it was really that I had so many doctors standing behind me who became aware of the Holson doctor. And when you go on social media or you do something like this as a doctor, there is the fear that am I going to be the TV doctor? Like I love my job as a GP. I think I'm good at it and I, I'm very passionate about it. But there's the potential to be perceived as a sellout or, you know, this person represents us like she's completely bonkers. So when I got the kind of backing of the community from specialists, from other GPs, from the UK, groups of paediatricians, I said to my husband, I was like, if anything, this has made me think, gosh, well, they're standing behind me to be a voice for our profession. I've got to crack on. The intention of the attack was to stop me from talking about vaccines. Honestly, it did for a patch because I was just scared. Take it back. Yeah, absolutely scared. And now I've crept back in again. Yeah, um, and yeah. I think I think what you were part of um, and happily is expanding is the medical community's reaction to a whole lot of what I would describe as woo about vaccines, mm. and. Um, you know, we now know that Facebook and the World Health Organization, so this is a pretty, you know, kind of, you know, kind of... Highly considered body. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Facebook perhaps less than the World Health Organization. Let's <laughs> go WHO number yeah, one. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was going But <laughs> are now kind of recognising the harm that these um, misinformation kind of fodder sharers have done because we've seen epidemics of things like measles in the United States of an unprecedented calibre since the 1950s, um, which is just so sad. It is just so completely preventable. We've had babies die. We've had old people who, and, you know, those who can't be vaccinated die from these, you know, preventable diseases. And it is just, it's just so just disheartening that, you know, this misinformation has such power and that those who are the, you know, kind of hapless victims of it um, have really been disempowered. Yeah, that's beautifully put. I think, you know, it really scares me. Like when the World Health Organisation come out and say one of the biggest threats to global health is the anti-vaccination movement, that's frightening. And, you know, there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there about vaccination, um, about us being paid, about us intentionally reducing the IQ of the population, about us inoculating disease instead of preventing it. But what my response is constantly is I would not vaccinate my child and, you know, none of us would if I thought it was actually harmful. And I just think my child is over-vaccinated. If you saw her thing, it's ridiculous. Um, she's had more than what she needs. And I'm like, I wouldn't do that to the thing in the universe that I care most about. You know, we lead by example as doctors. We vaccinate ourselves and our children. And I just, I don't know where the fear comes from. It's really, you know, Julie Leask, who's a, uh, I don't know if you know her, from Sydney. She's a professor who basically studies anti-vaccination movements and the psychology behind them and why this kind of develops. And she came out and reached out and supported me during this patch. You know, her her, her wisdom and her experiences were opening. I mean, what I'd experienced, she'd experienced mm. on a huge scale. You can imagine what she experiences. 
basically the message was you cannot understand this very small percent of the community you can't reason with them it's just absolutely black and white in their mind they're extremists they are but what scared me is people go it's a small proportion but you go whoa is it because they're so loud they're loud it's quite aggressive but also I feel like from social media it's climbing I feel like that misinformation and that kind of uneducated voice in the Mm. area of vaccines these people are usually not you know got any qualifications in Mm. science or medicine they're kind of spreading tentacles yeah I think it's like lemmings or like a herd kind of response and we know that that can happen in human populations we know it can that you have a small extremist movement and then what they do is they they kind of like frighten a group of people who maybe don't have the confidence in the medical fraternity or the or the level of education to really understand yeah. um, the nuances of the the science behind vaccination. It's complicated, you know, and I don't say that in a way to put anyone down or be pejorative. I think a lot of um, the mission behind our podcast with fertility is that a lot of the issues are super complicated and, you know, someone like myself has studied for 20 years to grapple with it mm. and you can't expect somebody who hasn't got that education to suddenly in a snap of fingers grasp, you know, every concept and so there's the possibility to really have a lot of misinformation out there. Um, but we see in political Um, you know, history that you have, you know, for example, a fascist dictator who, you know, kind of has um, extreme ideas and then they have a following because some of those ideas influence others. And so I think anti-vaxxers, you know, without being too extreme about it, are like that. There's a a kind of like an almost religious, non-evidence-based belief in a concept that some hold strongly. And then they may influence others who don't feel so vehemently about it or have that strength of belief, but who don't, on the other hand, have the understanding or the um, confidence in the science that's the counter-argument and go along with it. And, you know, as a mum, if I wasn't medical and I had somebody saying, you know, this might cause X, Y, Z in your child if you do it, that that might raise a a skerrick of a doubt. And then there's that kind of, you know, Andrew Wakefield who published that very flawed paper oh, yes. in The Lancet about, you know, MMR and autism. Can I just ask? Yes. I, I guess I know, but what's The Lancet? Oh, sorry. So it's a very prominent medical journal mm-hmm. with a very high what we call impact factor in medicine, which is it means it's got, you know, bang for buck in terms of influencing. Very respected yes. journal. Okay. That's a better way to put yeah, no, no, so it. So if something's in The Lancet... It's serious. It's usually a pretty big deal. Yeah. yeah we're on to it. So this was years ago, I think. Yeah, the, it would have been in the 90s or yeah. no, early noughties. Yes. And he fabricated information. So he was like a science fraud. And it was mm. published in The Lancet. Yeah, but he made up his data. It was later taken away from The Lancet. They apologised. The doctor was deregistered. Mm. But his data was completely flawed. He'd fabricated the data and basically come out to the world and said MMR causes autism. Now that... Really scared so that's measles, mumps and rubella. Yes, yes, that's the shot that kids get at 12 months on the mm-hmm. schedule. That frightened people. To this day, people in my consulting room will go, Priya, just to confirm, this one doesn't cause autism. And I print out mm. the fact sheet from the immunisation handbook. You know, it was flawed data. Subsequent studies have been done. Huge amounts of research have been done post that to actually say, no, in no way does that vaccine cause autism. But 
it's the kind of it's the remnant it's the the seed that gets planted it's like what you spoke about before Raylia where people who are kind of in the gray not sure hear something the seed gets planted and then it just gets watered yeah and if you don't capture those people in a non-aggressive manner you know we try and capture people and go have you thought about this here's some stuff to read my kids vaccinated this is why this is the herd this is what we're talking about if you don't try and intervene you just lose people and it's really scary and the consequences are like you said huge Mm. outbreaks of measles people kind of go oh who cares measles and that's what people will tap me still on social media about i did a post on measles um, and people kind of said, you know, it's a virus. My mum had it. My dad had it. You're just fear mongering. Well, there's a reason we needed the vaccine. Exactly. And people don't realise that, yes, it's a virus like chickenpox, but we know that these simple viruses can cause really serious complications mm. like brain inflammation called encephalitis or pneumonia, sepsis, death. And then people go, but measles doesn't kill people. And we go, but the complications can, and they do. But if you can avoid getting a virus, shouldn't you avoid getting a virus? Even I if you can get yeah. over it? But we're all in an echo chamber. This well, is the I'm problem. Not, but yes, sort of. We're all of the same view. And that's the yeah, thing. When you meet someone who's not on the same page, you kind of go, yeah. oh, mm. I yeah. don't quite. And yeah. one of the things about vaccination in general, I feel, is that it's it's been so successful and that in itself has yeah, led to this. As a fertility specialist, one of my own blinkers that I have that I have to constantly remind myself of, especially when occasionally patients come to seek help at a point in time where there might not be anything the matter just because they've been concerned that pregnancy hasn't happened immediately, is that most of the couples that I deal with have profound pregnancy and fertility problems. They've been trying for a long time and there's generally something the matter you would have a very different perspective, Priya, because you would be seeing couples when they come to see you and probably maybe women more than couples, I would say, um, in this context, when they're just thinking about having a baby. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your take on how you would approach a woman when she's come to talk to you about starting her family and, and the things that, are, that, are, that, that would be routine for you to cover in, in, in that stage? So I see... First of all, GPs quite, you know, we do see the different ends of the spectrum because I don't know what happens often once they just kind of go on this journey with the fertility specialist. The first thing is one of my jobs is to actually plant the seed, is to get people to think about family planning. And so I'll often say to women as they're leaving my room, they've come in for their cervical cancer test or flu vaccine or, you know, some other unrelated health issue. I simply, because the guidelines strongly suggest trying to capture women before they even conceive to make them healthier and improve pregnancy outcomes. So I'll often drop the line, are you thinking about a baby anytime soon or a kid's on the horizon or, you know, you've already got a toddler about to turn three, have you thought about a second kid or is that not on the agenda? Just to get women thinking and then I say, can you come and see me six to 12 months before you even try so we can get you sorted beforehand? And just planting that seed can improve pregnancy outcomes, which, you know, I'm a big nerd. I love preventative health. And I'm like, wow, I can intervene and improve, you know, outcomes for mum and baby. But the types of things I do when I see someone before they even pregnant is simple stuff like um, what's height, weight, body mass index, what's your blood pressure doing, what meds are you on, are they safe if you conceive? You know, we might change around antidepressant medication or blood pressure stuff to make it safer. 
But the key things that we do are check bloods. So we check things like, you know, blood counts, are you anemic? Uh, your rubella status is a big one. So mm -hmm. rubella is something we can vaccinate you against. We can't give it to you in pregnancy. So the vaccine is live. So we can't give it to you once you're pregnant. But if I can get you before you're pregnant and find that you're not immune and I vaccinate you, then I protect you and the baby. You know, rubella can cause deafness and, and lots of other issues. And we still have rubella outbreaks, by the way. People think rubella's just gone. Childcare centres in Melbourne have recently had outbreaks of rubella. So, you know, we, we basically check bloods um, and see, you know, are you nutritionally getting all the right stuff? Are you on the right supplements, folic acid, iodine? What can I do to improve, A, your chance of conceiving and B, the pregnancy outcomes? That's the plan. So what are... What are some of the steps that you take? So I guess weight is something we've spoken about before. The, you mentioned rubella vaccines. Mm -hmm. So what it would be a blood test would be somewhere to start? There's always a blood test and there's a set of bloods we are doing all three of us, which, you know, I know Rayleigh would be aware, but, you know, there are standardised bloods all of us would get, like yep. HIV, syphilis, rubella. Those are just standardised mm -hmm. to check that, you know, is there anything we can optimise before you get pregnant? Then there are certain bloods I would get, like vitamin D, because I'm darker skinned. Mm -hmm. You guys might not. Um, you know, some of us might get thyroid. Some of us might not. Often women kind of want... The, the, the thing is, you know, online there are so many forums now. People kind of go, but my friend had MTHFR testing. What's that? That's um, gene testing. Oh, okay. So it's, yeah, MTHFR is a very... Well, it's a big thing on mothers' group forums. People like to test for it because there used to be a lot of, um, we thought, an association between perhaps miscarriage and clots and all sorts of other things. But the newest evidence, really, and lots of research has been done, and the NPS Choosing Wisely, which is just a huge peak body in Australia, basically say all the data now shows that that gene has no association with miscarriage or thromboembolism like clots and things so really they say yes it's funded by medicare but we actually don't recommend that you test for it so i try and i don't know where do you sit on that Rayleigh? look i think it's a little bit more complicated uh but i agree with you there's no strong association and i think where things get difficult is when somebody has no particular syndrome but has recurrent miscarriages yeah. and might have. So, for example, I have a patient who I saw the other day who had no particular syndrome, no, not any blood clotting autoimmune problem, but had a few different things that could together plausibly cause concern, like um, in terms of MTHFR, which is just a folate metabolic yeah. enzyme, she was a person who had the poorer functioning phenotype and she was a heterozygote, which means had one bad copy of a gene that it's called factor V laden that can cause clotting problems. It can cause a predisposition to having blood clots. And she had a non-diagnostic increase in some of the autoimmune factors. And together with that, she had no other issue identified that caused her recurrent miscarriages yeah. and so I did treat her empirically so see end, yeah see. I see the extreme yeah. and I did treat her with blood thinners and she did carry a healthy pregnancy so yep. it, you know that I think we don't know everything oh, definitely and not. and one flaw I'm a big supporter of evidence-based medicine but one flaw of the way that we create evidence-based studies is we have to assume that everybody in the study is the same mm. 
And we know in reality that there are going to be patients who you need to have individualised care mm-hmm. and there's going to be an end to where the medical evidence guides us. And I think as a kind of subspecialist in fertility, one of my roles is to say to a patient in that circumstance, this is the evidence that we can draw on that I can say this is what medicine knows about this, Mm -hmm. this is your situation and you may be outside that core group and this is an evidence-free zone moving forward. But from a hypothetical point of view, these are the problems that I think might be influencing your situation and from a first principles stance, Mm -hmm. this is the potential treatments that we might use to combat that problem and these are the potential risks and benefits of those treatments yeah. and, we, and we've got to individualise care. So I think of MTHFR like blue eyes and brown eyes. Mm-hmm. If you have a look at someone with blue eyes, that's what we call a polymorphism. So it's a, it's a, it's a recognised difference in the population. Mm-hmm. It arose from a mutation in a gene. And people with blue eyes actually have weaker eyes in some ways, they're more likely to get a cataract, for example, with sun exposure than someone with brown eyes who has better pigment um, protection. So it's a weakness. But it's not in itself a disease. Mm. It's a difference. And that's how we think about MTHFR. They have an enzyme that works perfectly well. There are syndromes where when the MTHFR gene really doesn't work, that babies present with severe issues yeah. very early in life. Yeah. So having a functional gene, if you, it, basically I say to patients, if you couldn't metabolise folate, you wouldn't be here. No, you have right. to be able to metabolise folate. Whether you do that, you know, I think of it like Kathy Freeman running a race versus me. Mm-hmm. She was going to be much faster than me. She's better at it than I am. Mm. But I can still run without, you know, keeling over, hopefully, at the moment. <laughs> so... I think of that, like someone who has the classic gene is like Kathy Freeman and someone who can't run quite as well but is still getting by is like me. Um, you can give you know, what's called folinic acid if you're worried about it. Folinic yeah. acid is like a mushed up baby food form of folate that yeah. anyone can metabolise. And um, a lot of naturopaths in the community give that advice and so um, it, is, it is something I think it's potentially a harmless manoeuvre and um, if, if I have a patient who's worried about MTHFR, that's what I would advise them to consider and you can't overdose on folate just like you can't overdose on spinach. Yeah. So that, that would be how I tackle it. I guess the, um, the difference, I, I, we see very different ends of the spectrum but I guess I see people when they're thinking about pregnancy, there's no mm. complications I think if every GP started doing MTHFR testing, Absolutely. we'd be in real trouble. Ridiculous. Yeah, it wouldn't yeah. be the right thing so to do. Are, so if we go back to maybe, at what stage do you say to someone, it's time to see a specialist? So I would send someone to someone like Raylia if they're over 35 and, you know, if I give them six months of trying, I often give patients a choice at 35. I say, look, if you're particularly anxious, I'm just going to refer you off. Yeah. I think, you know, patient anxiety, I try and manage that. The guidelines strictly say let them try for six months, but there are some people who, you know, it's just not worth it for their mental sanity, so I just send them off. People with things like PCOS who've got really irregular cycles, uh, women who've had any previous kind of pelvic inflammatory disease or abnormal ultrasounds, I refer off. Um, 
and people who've had recurrent miscarriage. Now, that's meant to be three or more. There are a lot of my patients who have two who are very anxious, who just want to speak to Raylia or someone to know. That's fine. I think, you know, if your patient needs reassurance and they often get pregnant and nothing happens, they don't need any intervention. But I'm very much, yes, you know, like you just said, I'm by the guidelines, but people don't fit in the guidelines all the time and you've got to adapt and if people need a bit of reassurance and hand-holding or intervention earlier, so be it. Uh, one thing one thing that I've noticed in the last five years, it's been quite a research interest area of mine, is um, preventative fertility preservation elective egg freezing. As a GP, have you seen changes in the way that women present and do you talk to women about egg freezing? I do. I think I agree with you. I think more. I have a lot more people raise it with me a lot more women are very comfortable saying I don't want to have children right now I want to consider my options so I actually send a lot more women off to have a consult to talk about cost and you know how the eggs are retrieved and what's the success rate for how long you leave it and all the rest of it uh, I think that women are much more empowered to consider their options and I think that the the price has kind of started to shift so it's actually more readily available for a lot more women which is exciting but it feels like to me as a female GP that more women are considering this and I think it's awesome because I think if you know that you're not ready for kids yet and you know that it's something you'd like in your future well you should have options available because it's certainly harder you know our body clock you feel it ticking whereas men kind of have a a different perspective they can have children much later in life if they choose to and touching on that as as a GP would you say that you see many men coming to talk about fertility I get women dragging their partner in <laughs> so you know people going I've brought him in can you tell him what he needs to do or what does he need to go on a supplement or does he need a sperm count for people listening by the way you know normally we would not do sperm counts and, and morphology testing and looking at the sperm or anything if there's no reason to unless there's you know a history of chemo or radiation or something in the medical history we tend not to test the male's fertility yeah I see them either dragged in or I see men who have taken anabolic steroids at the gym mm. or something and they go I'm freaking out my wife or partner wants to have a kid so we have a whole series on men's fertility including oh, an episode dedicated to men who have taken steroids there you go. so just search that through our feed yeah, so I get those men or men who go, um, you know, I've been taking finasteride with Ashley and Martin, the hair loss drug, and, you know, what do I do now? So that's when I see them. Either they're panicked or their partner's brought them in, but <laughs> otherwise, no. Yeah, it's interesting because I can tell you from my, my practice in at least 50% of cases where people actually need assisted reproductive mm. treatment to conceive, there's a male factor. And in 30% of those cases, the male factor is the factor. So, you know, it's such a high prevalence. And one of the things that does break my heart a little bit sometimes is when a woman who is over 35 has been trying for six months and then at that point in time you find out that their partner is azoospermic, which means doesn't have any sperm in the ejaculates, have never had a chance or has a really low count that's, you know, going to be to some degree contraceptive mm. so it's 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 one of the sadnesses I think in the way that we approach fertility that men kind of do come into it a little bit late in mm. the picture um, 
But hard. it is the guidelines, isn't it, to investigate after six months? So. It is. But like I said, I do refer, I give patients the option, which is, yes, the guidelines are there, but if a 35-year-old is particularly anxious, I just think, what's the point in saying wait for six months when you're that stressed anyway? Do we, you know, we know that perhaps it has an impact on fertility when you're stressed and having scheduled regimented sex anyway. Um, I find, Raylia, though, I often have patients who I refer to someone like Raylia and they literally conceive waiting for the appointment. Just yeah. having the referral in their hand and the appointment, just something settles. And I'm like, well, it just tells you that people just want reassurance and a chat half the time. Yeah. But some of the time there is actually something wrong and if you can intervene earlier, well, wonderful. Yeah. You have yeah. better results anyway. I yeah. had a patient um, that I saw on Friday to had been trying to conceive for two and a half years and they'd previously had a child naturally. They'd, they'd been sent in and I managed to have a little look at a few different things. We gave a tubal flush. We've, we've done an episode earlier in this series about tubal factor and fertility and I, I sent this couple for a, an ultrasound mediated tubal flush. Um, I also corrected subclinical hypothyroidism yeah. in the female, which was under-recognised. Yeah, um, and they conceived in the cycle after the flush. So I think, you know, one, one thing to really say to women and couples is that you know, sometimes a little tweak is what's required and um, it's not every couple and that comes to see me that ends up down an IVF style pathway. I think think that is the the thing to really focus on is that being referred to the fertility specialist doesn't mean you're about to have a procedure or there's a really big issue or you're going to have to have IVF. It could be something that just a specialist needs to look at in a different way. Yeah, Yeah. And, and holistically as a couple and with a second pair of eyes. Once... Priya, so you've referred someone to Raylia or a specialist and they've gone and they've to the specialist and they've conceived. What is then your role? Do they go back to you? What happens during the pregnancy? Do they go back to Raylia? What, what, what's really the care depends. plan, I suppose? So there's, is op- there's options, but it very much depends, particularly with a fertility specialist, on... On, on the on the person. So, for example, yeah. uh, I don't do obstetrics yeah, yes. because as a CREI fertility specialist, I create far too many babies to possibly <laughs> deliver them all. Um, <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't I've it? I've got to look after. She says she's a retired. I, I, call, I call myself a retired obstetrician, but um, you know, obviously there are a myriad of fabulous obstetricians out there for couples who want to have private care under the care of an obstetrician. But that's not the only model of obstetric care. I don't know, Pre, do you do shared care? I haven't done the dip-op, so I don't personally do it. That, there is the option of shared care, though. So just say you conceive either with Raylia or That's without right. any intervention. Mm-hmm. Yep. You've really got lots of options for pregnancy care in Australia, and we're so lucky, so incredibly lucky, because the public system in Australia is wonderful. Yeah, very lucky. So you will get referred in Victoria, for instance, to a public hospital whose catchment you fall into based on your home address. So occasionally they'll make exceptions, but most of the time it's postcode driven. So my catchment in Richmond is people will either go to the Mercy or to the Royal Women's. So what really happens is I will usually look after the patient up until about 18, 20 weeks when the public hospital will see them. So I'll arrange all the kind of Down syndrome screening if people want it, um, you know, genetic carrier screening, which is a whole other topic, but I usually do that before pregnancy. Uh, I'll organise the 13-week scan, usually the 20-week one, but if they've got a medical problem, the public hospital will see you sooner. 
Okay. They will always, if I write in and say this person has a thyroid disorder or they're diabetic or the oral glucose tolerance test I did earlier has shown early diabetes, they'll always see them sooner, like 10, 11, 13 weeks whenever they need to. The good thing about public is there's no out-of-pocket cost unless you're paying for scans or, um, you know, certain specialised blood tests. You are um, You are given options in terms of potentially doing kind of midwifery programs with some particular hospitals or you can go through the standard public hospital model which is you know you have appointments with either a midwife or a doctor until you deliver your baby you know what people talk about on social media and mother's group forums though is that in public yes you don't have a very long hospital stay so you're normally if you have a vaginal birth you're normally out the door within a day or two usually and that can freak some people out um but that's what the majority of women i suspect in australia still do based on what i see in my clinical practice you've got shared care which is the option to go through a gp who has done additional obstetric training who basically sees you in conjunction with the public hospitals you're basically linked with a a hospital and you'll see the gp for obstetric appointments because they know how to you know measure and what to feel for and they know potential pregnancy complications the minute it gets complicated though they will get the hospital involved but a lot of women love that because you you have the same you know it's like me looking after my patients you know for the entirety of their pregnancy you've got that continuity of care you do and the relationship and a lot of patients love that and then you've got the private model which is where you have an obstetrician who looks after you for the duration of your pregnancy there is an out-of-pocket cost so in australia it can vary from five grand to eight maybe ten grand it depends on your health care it does on your on your on your private Private. health insurance but the advantage there is you know there are lots of advantages to each model but Mm. you get to choose who you go and see male female which hospital you would like to deliver at where they work based on that and you see one person throughout the pregnancy so you know i'm a type a neurotic person I'm pregnant, we're seeing a private obstetrician, and that's simply because I'm neurotic. It's your choice. Yeah, it's your, that's it. it's your choice. Yeah, yeah and I, I suppose the advantage of a private obstetrician is they can deal with anything that arises. Yeah. I, you know, as, as a retired obstetrician, mm-hmm. I can tell you that in the public hospital system where I trained, yeah. the majority of normal births are delivered by really skilled midwives. Yes. Yeah. And really the obstetrician gets called in or the obstetric registrar gets called in to deal with the abnormal. So really you spend your whole life, you know, as an obstetric registrar, kind of dealing with, you know, what I say, when the shit hits the fan, (laughs) to quote an Aussie expression. Um, And you, you become very skilled at dealing with situations, kind of being called in when the, you know, situation is becoming challenging. Challenging. People don't realise that though, I think. that no. Um, yeah, like most of the babies I see born at the Royal Women's are delivered by the really, really skilled midwives. But, you know, the minute there is a complexity, like an obstructed labour or a hemorrhage or things aren't moving. Or fetal distress, yes. the baby's getting, getting you know, distressed by the labour process, which yeah. is, you know, I always think of, you know, labour is when the uterus contracts and contracts and it contracts and the baby is basically holding its breath when yes. the uterus contracts, the blood flow to the placenta stops. And while most babies can tolerate, tolerate that yeah. because they're, they're physiologically adapted to it, mm-hmm. um, sometimes, especially when labours are prolonged or when the baby themselves um, might be little or the placenta might have yep. not been as, as um, strong, mm-hmm. that can be a challenge and, and babies can cannot survive that if, if without intervention. Priya, are there any special projects you're working on at the moment you want to tell us about? 
So I'm right. I've written a children's book oh. um, on healthy eating. So it's called Rainbow Plate. So I'm about to get that. In going October back to and... the going back to the wholesome doctor. Yeah. So that's kind of you know the Australia Health Report came out in 2018 and said 99% of kids aged two to 19 don't get enough vegetables and and you know I think a smaller proportion don't get enough fruit. So I'm very passionate about the simple stuff and you know toddlers and kids and diet and how you can make it fun because it's not easy. So the book is is aimed at preschool kids but it's got a letter from me to parents on you know what are the recommended servings what do you do with fussy eaters so yeah that should hopefully be a bit of fun and where do we where do our listeners go to get more information so you can go to my website which is thewholesomedoctor.com.au but i so wholesome doctor on all the socials yeah and the website yeah and they can also google dr priya alexander fabulous thank you so much for joining us today priya yeah thank you guys Thank you for listening to today's episode of Knocked Up with Dr. Priya Alexander. For more information about today's episode, you can visit womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and check out our show notes. You can also on the socials look for information about us, Women's Health Melbourne, and follow, follow Dr. Rayleigh Alou and also 